0: Hey, everybody, Chris here from Tailboard Talks, and today's episode is a really, really special one. We're talking with Molly Jones, who works for a company called Advanced Recovery Systems, who is also the partner with the IAFF Center of Excellence, and what she does is travels the country and puts on presentations as well as doing an enormous amount of webinars and virtual events. Now, she's coming to my department in about a week or so with the presentation of behavioral health awareness for spouses and relationship resiliency. That's just one of the many topics that Molly gets into and one of the many topics that she is absolutely fantastic at talking about. So after today, I'm really hoping that she's on your short list. If you need to reach out to someone to talk to your people, she should be the first one that you think about. All right, really hope you like this one. Talk to you guys soon, and let's get into it. Here comes the intro. Skip forward 30 seconds if you want to get right to the episode. This is the Tailboard Talk podcast, the best health, wellness, and lifestyle resource for the fire service. We're using stories, lessons, and tips from the front lines to give a realistic view of what the job can do to us and how we can make it out alive. I'm Chris Morella, a firefighter since 03, medic since 05, full-time since 08, and promoted to lieutenant in 20. I'm also a personal trainer and strength coach, and I'm here to give you the best information and host the best discussions to make us capable and durable, both on the job and away from it. So grab a heater, steal some fancy creamer from first shift, and let's go chat. Uh, so we might as well just jump into it then. Um, this is actually going to come out tomorrow because I had my dates wrong. And this so this usually gets posted on Wednesdays, Wednesday mornings. And uh, next Wednesday is when you're presenting. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to get this thing out now so we can push it around a little bit. Um, and uh, people can kind of get an idea of who you are and what you'll be talking about and something to look forward to next Wednesday or Maybe they'll be like, oh, we can, we can have Molly come by and talk to us, you know? Um, yeah. So one of the things I, I had to learn, shamefully, was who you work for and how you work with the Center of Excellence. So just jump into that real quick. We're not going to do too much backstory stuff. It's kind of a theme on these shows is like, I can't stand flashbacks and backstories. Um, mm-hmm. I like them to come out, and I like talking about people's history and backstory, but when it's like, well, in middle school, I did this, and that it just drives me crazy, so... Um, let's start with the the working relationship between your company or the company you work for and the Center of Excellence, and kind of go from there.
1: Okay. So, do you want me to give kind of a background to on what I do? And oh yeah,
0: yeah. Because you have a very specific role, which I think is an awesome role. But then, then we're definitely talking about college, um, <laughs> and then uh, we'll kind of that'll kind of grow as the as that podcast goes. So, go ahead and yeah, jump in all that stuff.
1: Okay. So I am Molly Jones. I'm a licensed social worker and clinical education coordinator for Advanced Recovery Systems. And Advanced Recovery Systems is a behavioral health treatment company that was founded in Florida in 2013 by two physicians. And over the years, they have expanded outside of Florida and opened behavioral health treatment companies or facilities, I should say, that are licensed in primary substance abuse and then focused on co-occurring mental health challenges for the general population. And they've opened these centers kind of coast to coast uh, within the United States. So they have facilities in Florida, Colorado, Washington, Ohio, Uh, in New Jersey with a new center opening in the Atlanta area later this year. But they were approached uh, probably a little bit before 2017, because that's when the Center of Excellence opened. But our leadership team was approached by the International Association of Firefighters to create the Center of Excellence in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. So that is kind of how this relationship began between ARS and the IAFF and kind of our work with first responders. So they partnered and opened uh, the IAFF Center of Excellence in March of 2017. And it has opened the door for us at Advanced Recovery Systems to really focus more of our time and attention on fire service members and first responders as a whole. I came onto the team in July of 2019 and was primarily tasked with vetting providers. They wanted me to find treatment providers across North America that specialize in treating first responders and then vet them, so essentially make sure that they're legit and have good experience working with first responders before we refer someone from the center of excellence to go see them for aftercare or just on that outpatient level, providing recommendations to first responders that were calling us. We wanted to make sure that we really knew who we were recommending. So that was the primary goal. And then when, uh, well, I guess not when COVID hit, but this was kind of the idea even prior to 2020, but we wanted to get more into this educational space and then COVID happened. And so I was uh, tasked with creating webinars that were specifically centered or focused on firefighter behavioral health. And we Started these in May of 2020, started with a cultural competency presentation for providers, and it's just grown kind of astronomically since then, as far as the different rabbit holes that we've gone down with our presentations. So we do just like general behavioral health awareness for fire service members, spouses. We'll talk about peer support. We've done chaplaincy webinars, retirement. We've done um, webinars even on like... Union type stuff like how can labor and management work together to meet behavioral health needs and create those initiatives within departments. So lots of different kind of avenues that we go down with those webinars and then in the beginning of this year so January of 2022 I transitioned kind of away from just working with first responders to now offering that education to other members of the public uh, Different groups that are just, you know, have general interest in learning about behavioral health. Like we'll do this uh, series with an organization within their HR department. They're focused on opioids and the opioid epidemic, and how can they better support, you know, their uh, the companies that work with them or those employees that those HR professionals are working with. So uh, just kind of expanding upon that education and trying to meet lots of different needs, not just first responder uh, kind of educational needs, but more across the board uh, in terms of populations that we're working with. So I kind of consider myself to be, I joke, but I consider myself to be like a mental health influencer of sorts. So (laughs) creating content, putting it out there, kind of being this, Talking head online, people will refer to me as podcast Molly, which I don't have a podcast. I have a webinar, but I take the compliment. I'm flattered by
0: it. <laughs> Same um, thing, yeah.
1: Yeah, so that's a in a nutshell what I do, and that relationship or affiliation with first responders, or how that kind of came to be.
0: And that, one thing I learned when we were doing kind of our our pre-talk, we did a phone call like a week ago or so, is that your heart really lies with the first responders though. Like you may be doing this other stuff now, but it was actually, you said it was more of a difficult transition getting out of the first responder responder world than it was for you to like, understand that you like it and want to be a part of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say that when I first started, it was pretty difficult. I kind of had a breakdown. Um, I was there in Illinois uh, and I was flying back to Denver where I'm based and it was like my first or second, month on the job and I'm waltzing around Chicago and going in and trying to vet all these providers that have been working with first responders for years. And I kind of had a breakdown on the plane and was like, uh, no one vetted me. I don't know anything that I'm doing. Um, so that was difficult. I don't want to downplay that experience at all. But to, to your question, yes, I mean, my heart really does lie with, with first responders. And it's been hard to kind of uh, move away from that everyday interaction with first responders, whether it was people needing to get into treatment or just calling and, you know, kind of like peer supporters calling and, and giving me the rundown of a situation and asking if they're on the right track and, you know, if this is what they should do in terms of helping that person. So that's kind of gone away a little bit. It's not to say that people still can't call me with those questions, and know with that need for assistance but more and more of my time is just focused on research and learning and creating uh, these presentations that I'm doing online and in person so yeah I mean my passion does really lie with first responders I think I know where you're going with this question and and I can elaborate a little bit on why that is there's yeah go for it there's this personality I think component and the cultural, the culture that uh, really resonates with me in terms of first responders, the um, just kind of put it all out there, I guess. The over compartmentalization of your feelings and being sarcastic and having the dark humor and also being extremely, you know, loyal and identifying with your work and your purpose and um, just kind of the way that first responders in general kind of express themselves is very much in line with who I am and I just think too the nature of the work is something that really draws me to it I started my social work career as a child welfare specialist so going out into the field and um, interacting with people kind of in the worst moment of their lives is is how I usually described it you know they're at risk or have already lost uh, their children, which is, you know, the most oftentimes people's most, you know, prized role or responsibility that they have in life. And then here I am, a twenty-three-year-old nobody, coming and taking those kids from them. Um, it was a, a really difficult experience, but I learned a lot, and I think that that kind of shaped a lot of my personality and and to me is in line with the work that first responders are doing, you know, sitting with people in crisis and then trying to help them figure out what to do next, identify the problem, what's the treatment plan going to be, you know, how am I going to help these people get to that that next point in life where, you know, they're feeling better. Um, So I feel like a lot of my, my professional experiences have been in line with that of first responders and helps me to relate, but then that personal component, um, I think is what keeps me kind of in it and able to make the quality of connections that that I've had the opportunity to make over the few last few years.
0: Well, I think just the ability, and we didn't talk too much about your social worker background in our first call, but um, I think something that resonates with first responders and, and people they trust and want to follow and consider leaders is just the ability for someone to stand in front of them and, and give them a plan or tell them what's going to happen and be confident in it and confident that they know how this thing goes and they're going to have, if not the answers, the way to find the answers as you go along. And there's nothing worse than having, well, there's a lot of things worse, but one of the main irritants for people who bring in outside presenters or resources is you get someone who's taking what they know in whatever space it is, even like nutrition or fitness, and then trying their best to pretend like they're they're a part of the fire service or the paramedic community. And they're making all these strange parallels that don't really fit. And when it gets two or three questions deep, I'm like, well, how can I do this on shift? And they don't have an answer for it, but they're trying to fudge a little bit. I mean, that just, that ruins everything. So even your history of having, you know, I'll call it uh, comfort with confrontation, you know, being able to confidently stand in front of a group of of first responders and be like, here's what I know. And here's how I know it affects you guys. And here's the plan that I can give you to get through it. And you can be confident that I'm going to take care of you. I think that's going to do more to build trust and and uh, gain a followership than than really anything. So yeah, I'd say your your background on that is a hundred percent applicable and, and extremely valuable to what you're doing today. And I can only imagine that you're having confrontations when you go to these places, right? You're not just going to walk in and be like, "Hey, I'm going to talk to you about some stuff that you've been avoiding for the past twenty years," and uh, we're all going to be friends after the end. I mean, you're going to you're going to walk into a group of skeptical people, and so when you get going. And you're starting to do your webinars, or you're uh, you're traveling the country and going to all these departments. At, at what point did you feel like, oh, okay, I I can do this. Like this is, I can connect with these guys. You know, maybe because we're all screwed up together for some reason. They're they're listening to me, and I have a good influence on them, and they trust me. Was there like a turning point, and where you where you really thought like, okay, I I'm in. Like this is what I want to keep doing. Well,
1: I think a part of my personality that probably lends itself towards uh, those those strong relationships with first responders is the imposter syndrome. So I uh, don't think that I've ever felt like I know exactly what I'm doing and this is going to be a home run, easy peasy. Uh, And maybe that's what makes my presentations so relatable. That's feedback that I get on a regular basis is just how kind of calm, cool, and just like rolling with it. I kind of am in my, in my uh, delivery of the information. And I think it is because I approach it with that mindset of, I don't really know or have all the answers, nor do I want them, but I'm here to tell you what I do know and how I can help. And uh, yeah, there's always that skeptic or that person that's maybe a little more pessimistic about the information and i don't fault them because that's how i am too you know i don't take anything at face value and try to kind of poke holes and what someone's saying okay. and read between the lines whenever i can sometimes that does me a disservice but um other times you know i think it's beneficial um, so Knowing that that's going to happen and already having that kind of mindset personally, I think really helps me to enter into those friendly debates, as I like to refer to them as um, in these presentations with a good attitude. And um, there are always those naysayers, and I think that oftentimes when we roll in somewhere and uh, whether it's, we're just sitting down, having a conversation, getting to know the people that we're working with, or maybe we are in that classroom setting. It, it, it there typically is someone that right out the gate is just like, math, this is for the birds. This is, you know, just that woo woo feel good kind of stuff. And I don't need this. Uh, this is for someone else. And usually those people by the end of the day or the trip We've been able to recognize that they are the ones that probably need this information or treatment even the most. Um, so I think having that idea also in the back of my head or or that possibility helps me to understand where they're coming from. It's it's probably more comfortable to be skeptical of things like post-traumatic stress disorder or depression or anxiety or whatever the behavioral health challenges. Um, you know, easier to say that's not me or I've got it under control than it is to acknowledge that, you know, I, this relates to me or these signs and symptoms are things that I'm experiencing in my own life. Um, So that helps having that perspective or looking through that lens, I think helps me to have empathy for other people, but also enter into those conversations in a way that's
0: a little bit more creative,
1: you know, in our previous conversation or call, we kind of touched on this a little bit. And, and I think I said that, uh, you know, if someone is skeptical of the information that I'm bringing forward, you're kind of asking some probing questions around why or, you know, what part of this do you think is, is not correct or untrue or, you know, that you're having difficult Uh, difficulty understanding or accepting and and then having that conversation. And I think that helps with stigma that helps with, you know, education and maybe even normalizing it a little bit for that person. Um, But as I've said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid of those um, conversations or arguments or debates or whatever you want to call them. Um, I think that entering into them confidently also helps kind of challenge some of those behavioral health stigmas and, and things that um, kind of keep people stuck too. So showing up with an understanding, empathetic attitude, knowing that I don't know it all and honestly being like, maybe some of this is a little bit baloney, uh, but let's try it out uh, is, is my approach. And I think that humanness has helped me a lot. Yeah.
0: Well, it's also a long game too, right? Like even with something like fitness, You know, I gave up trying to convince people to get in shape a long time ago. And what Kurt and I, the guy used to work for, and we work together now with the fire department and we're part of the fitness committee, what we do is just make ourselves available and we continue to be there and continue to put out whatever we can and continue to help the people we can. And then eventually when that when that skeptic spray to come around, you know, we've been there the whole time. We've been preaching the same things more or less the whole time. We've been a consistent source for the department, so maybe I mean, up to 10 years from now, they'll come and be like, all right, I do. My back is killing me. I do need help. And you guys have been consistent and helpful. So, so help me out, you know, and you're not going to win anybody that first day. But I think we talked about before too, like you might get a call, you know, a week later, or a month later from someone that was your, your uh, skeptic in class. And they're the ones, they're the ones out of the entire group that might re- actually reach out to you just, just later on.
1: Yeah. Those are the feel good moments when, when that happens when those people call and say, one, I'm sorry that I was uh, such a naysayer and uh, had a bad attitude in your presentation. Um, and two, I've really been you know, reflecting on that. And I think that I may be struggling. Do you have a recommendation of a provider for me? Or I need to admit to the Center of Excellence. Can you help me with that? And of course, we never want anyone to be struggling. But at the same time, that acknowledgement is of the struggle is not only going to help that person, but what we see is one person in a group, whether it's a shift or an entire department acknowledges that they are struggling or have been struggling and it's a domino effect. So it's almost like, you know, one person helps themselves. And then before you know it, there are more and more people kind of coming out of the woodwork in that area or that department that are also saying, Hey, I'm struggling. Or let's really put some time and energy into a behavioral health program. So that is cool, and I think that's what keeps me going a lot of the time. Um, and that's another sort of aspect of the first responder culture that I really love is this like level of excitement when the light bulbs go off and and the the. Click is there in terms of this information and then what you all go through on a regular basis. I'm not saying that every firefighter or first responder is going to struggle with behavioral health, but I kind of think all people do to some degree within their lives. So to see men primarily um, acknowledging that that struggle is real, that maybe they need help, they can't do it all, is really cool to to be a witness to. And if I spend too much time thinking about it, my eyes will start to water, and then I'll cry, and can't have that. So,
0: What <laughs> no emotion? Let's not get question. in. Let's not get in the emotion part of this. Okay, let's stick to the facts. All right. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Well, no, you brought up a perfect thing, which is it's a feel good moment, and it's true. But I want to kind of elaborate on that because there is a for me, I'll speak for myself as a practitioner, there is absolutely a little bit of selfish and like ego stroking when somebody comes to me and says, okay, you were right. I finally need help. Right. Like that feels good because you're like, I knew it. I knew you were hurting. I knew your back was killing you. So good. But overwhelmingly, like I would put that in like maybe 5% of the feel good. And the other 95% is like, thank God this person's finally going to stop hurting so much like that. It feels good to to know that I was right, but it feels even better like a year from now or however long their treatment plan is, seeing them not struggling with the same things that were so obviously a problem in the past. And so, you know, if you're listening and it, it, this kind of strikes home for you, know that you may say, I'm not hurting, you know? And a majority of the people who don't have the, the training and whatever field that you're denying might think that you're pulling it off. But the practitioners who are maybe suggesting there's an issue they, they know it and they can see kind of the whole scope of it. They know how it starts, goes through and ends and they can tell what part of it you're in and uh, you're not hiding anything from, from the practitioner. So absolutely there's going to be a little bit of feel good for the practitioner, but just know that most of that feel good comes from us finally seeing you not, not being so much pain in one, in one form or another.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and just to kind of hit that home a little bit more too, many firefighters and first responders are waiting a really long time before they are making that acknowledgement. So you're you're at this really high level of functioning where you're still able to show up and work this high stress job with lots of physical and, and mental demands. And then you stack all these behavioral health concerns or challenges or conditions on top of someone and they're still, you know, performing at that high level and then ultimately they come to this point of saying, okay, I need help. So that acuity has gotten more intense, more severe. So to see them make those connections and get that help when they finally do, it for many people almost is like a life or death situation, like this pivotal moment of either I go down this path or I go down this other path. And one is going to be, well, they're both probably going to be really difficult, but one is going to require that i be super introspective and deal with all this stuff that I've been avoiding. And that's going to be really hard and intense, but it's going to help me and my family and my work and all these other domains of my life. Or I go down this other path of probably least resistance and I continue to worsen my functioning declines. I develop an alcohol issue. I lose my job. I get divorced, like all these horrible life things happen. And if we just dial it back a little bit, we're able to see that there was this moment in time where you had this choice. And of course we all want people to go down that hesitant to call it the right path, but you know, the one that, encourages quality of life. Um, so to see people taking that initiative and taking that step is just really awesome. And and as a provider, you know, you're sitting there watching them walk down the path and thinking, they are in it. Like they are in for a tough road, but like more power to them. I'm so excited uh, to, you know, see what happens. And we oftentimes don't get to see the outcome of those treatment journeys and Sometimes, you know, we'll get to see people at a conference or something and, oh man, you talk about like tearful moments when someone comes up to you and you've talked to them two years ago when they were calling and making that initial acknowledgement of, of struggle. And then two years later, they're like, my life is great. I'm not suicidal anymore. Like all of these things, like waterworks, I cannot stop crying. Usually I have to be like, okay, I have to walk away now because you are really getting me. Um because that's just, it's not something that you typically see in behavioral health, whether you're working in inpatient psych or in a residential treatment center, or maybe even in an outpatient setting, you usually don't get to see the long-term progress that someone makes. So those full circle moments are really what, what keep me in it. And, being that the IFF, even though it's a super large organization, it's a small, you know, kind of circle of people. So you do have the opportunity to run in to people that you've helped later down the road. And maybe that's a part of it that kind of keeps me in it. I don't know that I've ever really thought of it like that before, but I will say that firefighters specifically are very motivated and willing to put in the work once they get to that, you know, level of care that they need to be in. And that's something that I think sets you all apart too from other populations and really keeps me going is that willingness to to put in the work because the average person, you know, they may not, you know, it may be easier just to say, I'm going to get a different job. I'm going to move across the country. I'm never going to talk to these people again. And that's how I'm going to solve my problem. Maybe that works for them, but for firefighters, that's oftentimes not an option because the job is part of their identity. You know, they're very rooted individuals um, in their communities. And, and so to just walk away from all of that typically isn't the answer. Um, so seeing those those connections and those full circle moments, I don't know, it's, uh, it's pretty cool to be a witness to. Well,
0: I think, so I'm pretty sure that for anybody listening, they, that, that part of this probably meant more than um, a lot of stuff we're going to talk about because, and it might not be the part you expect, but that lack of closure is one of the absolute worst parts of the job. Like Mm -hmm. just terrible. And uh, you know, that, that's one more, one more reason I suppose why, you know, when we were talking, it was so quick and easy to relate and kind of have so many commonalities between the way you approach your job and, and I approach my job. Um, because I think anybody who's listening to this and works in the fire service can be like, that is exactly how I feel with a majority of patients or situations that I really got invested in over over the course of 20 minutes um, and have no idea how it turned out. I mean, the lack of closure is absolutely one of the greatest stressors that I've come across uh, in, in you know over 15 years of doing this. So much so that when I was brand new, we had a and this comes up every year, so I kind of share it every year. We had a, a call with a lady who had a prolapse cord, and we discovered it. And I was—I had like days on. I had like three or four years on as a medic somewhere else, but I was brand new. And uh, we mitigated it. Like there were senior guys there who knew what to do. I was competent as a medic. We we put everything in the right place. I happened to be the person that did the the old keep the pressure off the cord maneuver, um, and rode with that rode with that lady all the way to the operating room, and then they she successfully had a C-section and they took the kid out through the magic of social media. Somehow or another, I think coincidentally she lives in town, obviously. And I lived right next to town for a long time. And now I live kind of in town again. Um, I, I saw her, my brother who works in the same department saw her and we recognized her. And she recognized me and recognized us. And through the magic of social media, I've been able to kind of keep tabs on this kid now. And he's just got into high school. And it's one of those things where it's like, that's a, that's a lifeline back for me sometimes of like once in a while, this stuff works out. Okay. You know, and for every, for every 10 or 12 calls that seem like they're going poorly, but you think he made a difference, but you don't quite know, there's always those handful that, you know, like, Oh, I saw that person six months later, you know, or I, or I get to see this kid now going to high school that um, would have had a kind of a dire consequence if we didn't treat it right or for it wasn't caught when we did. And so that lack of closure, I think a lot of people can relate to because I mean, it's a terrible stressor. And so for you to have that commonality also, I think, uh, is just one more reason why you're such a valuable asset to, to kind of our people. Um, so, well,
1: thank you. But and I just wanted to add to your point. I think it is so important because we're hardwired, you know, as human beings to really be pessimistic and have that negativity bias because that's what keeps us safe and aware of you know those threats in our environment. And so when those terrible things happen or we make those mistakes or outcomes aren't what we want them to be, we tend to focus on that and we remember all the bad versus all the good. So having those full circle moments, as we're calling them, or when we get to, you know, hear about the positive outcome, um, you know, that may help to offset some of that um, cynicism, or uh, kind of that perspective, I think that comes along with stress and trauma of, dang, the world is all bad. And um, what's the point in all of this, if you're able to remember those good, feel good moments, or, or, situations where you feel like you did everything right and the outcome was good, um, that can be kind of that motivator sometimes, uh, potentially in those situations where it's like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah.
0: And so decades and decades of that, right. we're going to kind of jump into something that we talked about on our previous phone call and you hit it real quick earlier, but I want to put it back in the context. We talked about it. Um, there's there's more resources now available than ever and there's more to come obviously but just the availability the acknowledging that this is a thing and people being willing and like yourself trained to help and then trained to vet people on the next step of not only you're turned on to help but here's where you can go to actually start making progress one of the things i've seen with after some some pretty uh, critical calls is the younger guys really don't have a scope of what's going on necessarily or they know it was bad but they don't know they don't have decades and decades of trauma put upon them to really be a that deeply and obviously affected by it. But what we'll see is the older guys who may have fallen in some bad lifestyle habits, who may have had a tumultuous couple of years or decade before them, they'll step up and say like, hey, these young guys don't know what uh, how bad that was, but I think they could really use to talk to somebody. And the way I've seen it is um, the old guy who needed the help and was using the young guy as an excuse to call someone to talk to the crew, you know. Uh, and that led down a line of questioning that you kind of go through that. I was like, oh man, this is exactly, this is exactly how I would talk to someone on an ambulance call that was withholding information or who was difficult to get information out of. So why don't you just take us through kind of the different approaches you've seen of people asking for help? Cause I think there's gonna be a lot of people that even after hearing this, or even after going and seeing your presentations still may know that they might need something or it's out there and I should take advantage of it. But what's, what have you seen people taking that first step of actually asking for help?
1: Well, it comes in a variety of of different formats. You know, there are, of course, those people that um, are able to be vulnerable and have no problem acknowledging that something may be difficult. And those are unicorns, I think, Um, you know, people that are able to just kind of stand up and say, hey, I have a problem. Someone help me or, you know, I need X, Y or Z. Um, It's rare, but it does happen. So, you know, that's one way. That we see that coming through, whether it's for educational, you know, uh, requests like presentations or even something more severe, like someone needing to go inpatient. Um, Those people that there are people out there that kind of just take the initiative on that. Um, But I think more often than not, it is like your example of, hey, I think so and so may be struggling um, or, you know, there's this there's been this event. Maybe it's a line of duty death or some other type of significant event within the department where, you know, either someone died or was seriously injured or um, some sort of other, you know, significant experience has happened and someone or maybe a group of people recognize that this is difficult. It could be because it's difficult for them internally, or maybe they are observing struggle in other people and then they reach out and, and make that request or call to us. Um So, you know, I think that that that's more common and and getting to your question about, you know, how we approach those situations when someone is calling and expressing that something is difficult for someone else. I think the first question or thought maybe that you have to have is how does this person know that it's difficult or that someone is having um, a a difficult time or challenging time processing the event, you know, are there observable signs that you've seen in that person? What are they? Um, You know, how do you, how do you know that? Um, And then, you know, if, if someone doesn't have the answer to that, you know, if there aren't observable signs or they haven't been able to pick up on that, then, you know, then you kind of go down the line of questioning of, you know, well, was this difficult for you? Um, Is there something going on internally for you that is driving you to make this call or uh, make this request uh, whether it's for peer support or education you know there's a lot of different needs out there Um, so it can kind of be like a two birds one stone sort of situation where someone may be reaching out initially on behalf of someone else and then through your questioning or just conversation I usually take more of the conversational approach you can typically get a lot of the answers to your questions if you're just a normal person and talk to someone and listen. Um, but, you know, through that, that conversation and, and question and answer format, you come to find that, wow, not only do maybe these rookies or probies need this information about the significance of this event, but um, the older guys and, and gals do too. Um, and, and here's how I know that because I've sat and talked to this chief or this captain and, you know, they're acknowledging their own struggle or I'm picking up signs of that. And usually if, if that's the case, um, I will even sometimes go as far to say, like, if we're going to do a, a presentation and a peer support team lead or captain or some other type of leader um, has made that call to me. And, and then oftentimes they have their own personal story. I usually ask them if they'd be willing to share that or if they'd be willing, you know, during the course of this presentation for me to kind of pick on them a little bit and, you know, maybe ask some leading questions so they can put their insight or experience into the conversation too, because that's going to get people much farther um, in an educational environment than me just standing up there and saying, here's what I've read and here's what I've researched and this is what I know to be true. Um, Some people may accept that, but I think uh, the majority want to hear that lived experience from their own. So um, I think it's really awesome, no matter where or how the ask comes through, but um, if people are willing to but their own vulnerabilities out there and kind of model some of this stuff in conjunction with that you know kind of professional i'm not an expert but expert type of approach um, to passing on this information that's the best scenario um, in terms of education and messaging landing for people yeah
0: and i remember from our from our original talk one of the questions specifically that you would Asked that. I thought it was it wasn't sneaky, but it was very smart. You know, if you get and because I'm envisioning certain people right now that I work with that that did this, and um, they said like, yeah, you know, that was a bad call, and I think you should call in somebody to talk to so and so because he's a young guy and and this and that. And your my job as an officer is to be like, okay, I understand that need, and now I'm going to do my best to to see what we can provide. Right, that's that's kind of my scope is facilitate what what the people need and do my best to make sure it's carried through. Now you took a line of questioning. I'm pretty sure your first question back to that person was almost something like, well, why would that situation be so difficult for that person? Like, what about that call do you think that person's having trouble with? And, you know, I remember saying like, I bet you get a lot of stories back when you ask that question because now you're asking not why is so-and-so struggling? Like, what are they doing strange? You're asking like, well, about that call, what's so stressful about it? And then that person's gonna be like, well, you know 15 years ago i had a call like that and it led to a lot of this and that and all of a sudden you've kind of not duped them but you've turned the tables on them now they're explaining why they actually considered a highly stressful call so that that kind of approaches things i think is so effective and so similar to the way we we ask patients questions it, it's very similar to saying like do you have any medical history and they'll be like no they'll be like do you take any high blood pressure medication they're like oh yeah four of them I'm like all right so now we have hypertension so it's it's one of those things you get around and you kind of end around the question to get the answer that you may think is already there.
1: Right. Yeah. It's kind of like a fact finding sort of situation. And if people start to express or, you know, talk about why they they think it's a problem for other people based on their previous experiences, oftentimes um, the conversation will turn towards you know, wow, that sounds like a very difficult experience that you went through 10 years ago. Were you able to, you know, process that and and get treatment for it? Or did you need treatment for it? Do you feel like you're still struggling? So again, it's like that two bird, one stone sort of approach. Maybe simultaneously, I'm encouraging someone to get their own treatment for something that happened 15 years ago. And then maybe also preventing something from developing in someone else because of the early acknowledgement of the possible problem. Right.
0: And I like that you use the word encouragement, you know, or I don't mean make it sound like a, uh, a booby trap that you're walking into that anytime you ask for help for someone, you're going to get psychoanalyzed, but, um, yeah, encouraging maybe the identification or, or, uh, resolution of some of this stuff. So, uh, we're running out of time, which is, which is fine because you, you're constantly putting stuff out there, like you said, and that's perfect. You have a presentation coming up in a week from my department. What do you, if people get to listen to this one week in advance and they just want some information on what they're going to encounter there, you know, what, what approach would you take to, incur, to, um, I guess, comfort, like pre-comfort someone into coming to this thing? Because it's going to be, no matter what, it's going to be kind of stressful, right? And you are going to be talking about stuff that's a little bit touchy, potentially. Um, what would you say to people to be like, hey, a week from now, it's all good. Come on in.
1: Well, I think that's a great question, especially being that this specific presentation is voluntary. Um, Many times we are providing mandatory trainings for departments, and so uh, people can't get out of it necessarily. Uh, But in this scenario, it is a voluntary uh, evening presentation for families and fire service members. So what we are going to do is start with A introductory sort of course. Uh, It's called Behavioral Health Awareness for Fire Service Members and Families. It's a very straightforward topic or uh, title there. Uh, But we're going to just kind of set the scene or stage for what are the most common behavioral health conditions for fire service members. So how do things like depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, substance use, and suicidality present, you know, what are those signs and symptoms? And for most of these conditions, there's some sort of spectrum to it. So mild, moderate to severe sort of cases. So at each level, what does that look like? How can I recognize that in myself and my peers? And then my Spouses, how can they pick up on this at home? A lot of these behavioral health um, symptoms first come up at home, and if you think about it, that's where we're most comfortable, um, and so that's typically where those uh, less than desirable maybe qualities that we possess or ways of being kind of first come out, so that reaction and anger, or irritability um, is typically directed at the family first. So kind of giving spouses that insight um, and being able to make those own connections for themselves is really a big goal here. And then the last part of the presentation is focused on what I call relationship resiliency. It's based around the Gottman method, which um, John Gottman is a researcher in the behavioral health space. He and his wife um, have done a lot of work um, in terms of relationships and have even gotten to the point of being able to predict through observation couples that will end up getting a divorce. So we're using their framework and kind of giving the audience tips on how they can apply these concepts Um, At home and also through that like firefighter framework of shift work, high stress, high trauma, um, jobs, you know, all those different kind of intricacies or unique aspects of the fire service that those men and women bring home. Um, So I think it's a really good course for anyone. You know, I think a lot of times there's big takeaways for those new firefighters and those Um, girlfriends or um, spouses that are, you know, new to this environment, maybe, or to this job, it's going to give them a lot of insight and background, probably on the fire service as a whole, but then also like, okay, this job may change my firefighter. They may, you know, be a different person 20 years from now, which hopefully they are because we should all be learning and growing and developing no matter what's going on in our lives. But, you know, that could change them for the better or for the worse. And so now that I'm more prepared for it and have this knowledge and insight, then maybe I can be more supportive rather than confrontational or um, skeptical even of my firefighter. I think something that really landed for me when I first started in this job and was trying to learn as much as I possibly could about the firefighter culture and the day-to-day and then, you know, how it all permeates into other aspects of a person's life was um, through this clinician and and ultimately kind of mentor. Her name's Jada Hudson. She's from um, Sugar Grove there in Illinois. Mm -hmm. So people may be familiar with her, but um, the family is something I've always been concerned about or interested in. And, Uh, She kind of put it to me in in a way that really made sense that these spouses and significant others of fire service members are almost like at a deficit when they don't have this information, because what are they doing when their firefighter comes home and is emotionally detached and shut down and, you know, maybe numbing out, Uh, they're going to pull from whatever the media tells us or what history has told us or whatever, um, you know, kind of our, our culture says that, okay, when my loved one checks out and doesn't talk to me and is, you know, all up in their phone, that means that they're cheating on me. So now they're cheating on me and I'm going to respond to that in a certain way. That's not helpful. And then now we're in a fight and we're fighting about something so off base than what is actually going on because what's actually going on is my firefighter is struggling with a traumatic call and they're trying to process that. Um, And if only I had known that and, um, led with with that mindset um, initially, then maybe I would have been supportive rather than um, confrontational, and uh, maybe we wouldn't, you know, be at this level of fighting that we're at, and and potentially, and this is maybe assuming a lot about what i be able to do in these presentations, but we know the divorce rate is really high for first responders, so maybe providing this education is a way to mitigate or reduce some of that. Um, So I think that there's a lot of information in this presentation for everyone that it's intended for. So, you know, there's stuff that firefighters are gonna learn to be able to apply to themselves. There's a peer support element. So you'll be able to take that back and continue this behavioral health awareness and and initiative that's clearly important. Um, And then of course, spouses, you know, they're gonna be able to learn more about their firefighters, about communication, and then hopefully that couple too is is learning some resiliency skills. So multifaceted, I guess is the way that I describe
0: it. <laughs> Molly, if there's something that I've learned after two conversations with you now is that you overdeliver, and
1: uh, <laughs> I can talk to a wall. Remember,
0: I uh, I love it because we are in need, and uh, I know we try to overdeliver right in a lot of situations on calls and and do everything we can. And I see nothing but the same coming back from you. And uh, I promise everything you're willing to over-deliver, there's someone out there who's willing to take it or listen to it or use it or think about it, and uh, hopefully that long game pays off and we all come around to the stuff we need. So I really appreciate it. This, this was awesome. This was better than the first time we talked. Um, I think we covered a lot of ground, and I'm excited for the presentation next week and to kind of keep talking to you, and and, uh, and just, I mean, I'll probably cut this part out, but I'm pretty sure I'm in Jada Hudson's book she wrote. Oh, yeah? She invited me to contribute to an article three or four years ago on fire engineering, and I think she took an excerpt from that that I had a quote in and used it in her book that she published, I think.
1: Well, I'm staring so at that book right now, so I'll I'll have to do some digging. I've read it front to back, and um, for anyone, if okay. you don't cut this out, it's called Firefighter Emotional Wellness, and it is a book that goes into all of those common concerns, for firefighters, and I just think she does such a good job of putting it into easy to understand language and terminology, and it's just it's not like too heady. You know how some yeah self help yeah. books or, or educational books can just you're like what what did they even say right here? I don't even understand what this means. I never feel that way when I read her book, um, so I highly recommend. It.
0: Well, be- believe me, if she if she included anything I wrote down in her first draft, even then it's not had, it was, it was a part about, um, stress response and fight or flight and cortisol and how to use physical activity to mitigate that. And it was, it was like a little tiny three sentence long thing, but it might be in there. It might be in there. If not, just lie to me and tell me it is. okay? Okay. Um, all right. Well, thank you, Molly. I really appreciate this. Um, like I said, I'm excited to see you talk to you soon again, and then kind of keep talking to you. I'm sure we'll be checking back in.
1: Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for having me on, and I'm really excited to be out in your area next week. Um, hopefully, you can include my contact information in the show notes, um, so if anyone oh, yeah. you know has any questions about anything I've brought up, or or wants those resources that we've vetted, or whatever, uh, you know, they can easily get a hold of me. Like I said, I welcome those conversations. I want to help. I want to solely work with firefighters and other types of first responders. So fill up my calendar, you
0: know,
1: (laughs) let me uh, make it to where I don't have time for anyone else.
0: I love it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Thank you
1: so much.